Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from the Millennium Library in Winnipeg, which is within Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, and Dakota, as well as the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis homeland. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 40 First Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing Return of the Trickster by Eden Robinson. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, and I'm not a firefly or a fairy or an ultra-dimensional alien. I'm just this guy, you know? Across the table from me is... Hi, I'm Trevor. I'm the branch head of the Louis Riel Library, and in solidarity with Chuck the Sasquatch, I'm wearing my Mountain Equipment Co-op fleece today. Across the table from me is... Uh, I'm Toby. I'm an outreach librarian based out of here at Millennium Library, and I am glad that my organs stay firmly inside of my body. Um, And across the table from me is our special guest. Hi, I'm Jordan Wheeler, and... uh... I'll just let it be known that my nickname in a few circles is Lil Sabe, which is the Anishinaabe one word for Sasquatch. And in the Okanagan Valley, the Okanagan Indians would call me Sasquatch as well. I am six foot four and on occasion can get quite hairy. And you, dear readers, we wouldn't do this without you. We want your opinions and thoughts to be part of our discussion, so send them our way. You can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. If you hang around until the end of the episode, you can enjoy our special segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Toby's going to tell us about the author, after which Trevor will give us a summary of the book. But first, we wanted to introduce, or reintroduce, our special guest. Jordan Wheeler has been a guest of the podcast previously when we discussed Trickster Drift, and if you've listened to that episode, you know why we're so happy he agreed to come back for this episode. Aside from being a past writer-in-residence at Winnipeg Public Library, he's written several books for both adults and children, including Digital Ogichita, Brothers in Arms, and Just a Walk. He's also written for television, including shows like North of 60, The Res, Arctic Air, and RenegadePress.com, for which he won a Gemini Award. He's a member of George Gordon First Nation in Saskatchewan and lives here in Winnipeg. Welcome back, Jordan. Thank you. When I was writing the blog post promoting this, I referred to Jordan as a friend of the podcast. So now I just want to make sure that, that that's okay. I didn't overstate things because uh, we don't have many f- actual Big uh, capital letters, friend of the podcast. So I thought I should. Uh, so I hope that was all right. We're, we're, we're characterizing you in that way. Um, a chum, a chum of the podcast. Chum. Okay. Yeah. We'll go in. I, I can edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, before we dive into the stuff, we usually do a little check-in. So uh, Jordan, what's uh, up with you? Wow, life, work, coming out of a pandemic. It's been it's been a crazy two years. Luckily, uh, I work at home most of the time anyway, and Mrs. Wheeler has gone freelance, so she's been working at home as well. Luckily, we get along really, really, really well, and we're entering, we're coming up on our 10th anniversary, which we will be spending in Hawaii for two weeks, a couple of rounds of golf, and hanging out with some Native Hawaiians and uh, other friends over there. Keeping busy, you know, the life of a freelance writer, several pokers in the fire, I think is the, the cliche. Even a documentary, still working on the book that I started when I was a writer in residence here. You would have thought 
two years at home without a lot of distraction except for, you know, reading in the news and looking at the numbers and there being a war now in Europe, uh, we would have got a lot more done. You know, we have an upright grand piano that I was going to learn and we have a trombone somebody left behind that I was going to learn, but no, none of the above. It's Somehow it seems like the more time you have, the less time you have. I don't know how it works. But. Yeah. Um, Mrs. Wheeler is much better at time management than I am. I'm, you know, when I hit the deadline, I'm up till three in the morning, four in the morning, <laughs> getting up at six in the morning. Um, not, this, not in the same nights, but uh, it's been hard to stay at it. Um, this, you know, impending sense of dread until we all got vaccinated. Plus, I got it in January. Um, luckily, it wasn't severe and luckily I didn't infect Mrs. Wheeler. But uh, yeah, it wasn't fun. No, yeah. that will put a damper on a lot of things for pretty much everybody. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. I started Don Quixote. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that was yeah. one of your uh, resolutions. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty intimidated by it. It's a, it's a good 1,000 pages. So I've decided to approach it 10 pages a day, and that's working out very well. Excellent. Yeah, I started I, Don Quixote about 10 years ago. Oh. I think I'm halfway through. I might have to reread a few things. <laughs> it's very, like, it's very meta. It's mm. um, very contemporary, considering it was written in Hundreds the 17th century. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it took him 12 years to write the book, I think. Yeah. So it's fair to take 12 years to read it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I was on a vacation last week, and uh, my wife and I were out for a walk in a wooded area. Just say that. And all of a sudden, I said, why is all there this blood on the ground? And it was a fresh snowfall, lots of blood. And then about maybe 10 feet away from this blood pool was the remains of a deer. Ooh. And we're not sure, but we think maybe a coyote. Uh, or a few. Or a koi wolf. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Hopefully but, not. I, but, you know, I was not expecting to see that because mm. I am not normally out in a wooded area. So it was quite surprising. And uh, there were two deer standing very nearby just kind of looking shell-shocked, like as if, like, what happened to Steve or whatever. Like, they, they didn't run away. They were just kind of there, kind of, yeah. So it was, and there were magpies on the carcass. And, yeah, that was, an, you know, when you go out for a walk, you don't really know what you're going to get. And that's what we got last week, so. It's uh, interesting. There's a lot of rabbits in the Wolseley area, which is where I live. And there have been eagles grabbing them, you know, Omens Creek or off the avenues. And really? the other uh, couple of weeks ago, I was in the backyard and a rabbit went booting down the back alley and a fox was right on its tail. And they cut around a yard, two houses down. And about 30 seconds later, I heard the rabbit scream. So oh, wow. not a pleasant sound, but and it's the first time I've ever heard it. Wow. But uh, whoever got the deer, lucky them. I love deer meat. <laughs> yeah. Nature... Does bloody, what it and, does. bloody and yeah. claw and tooth is the phrase, right? Yeah, and I guess leading up to this book with the the blood and animal thing is kind of prescient. <laughs> so I guess uh, we should jump into the biography. Yeah, let's do it. So the podcast has already talked about Eden Robinson twice um, in 2018 and 2019. So I didn't want to be too repetitive, but I did want to provide a general overview of her life and work and then talk about some more recent developments in her life since we last spoke about her. I did want to just start out with the bio on the Penguin website, which is so wonderful. And I'm going to try to say it slowly because so you can get you can take it all in. So Eden Robinson has matriarchal tendencies, doesn't have a pressure cooker, but knows how to jar salmon. Her smoked salmon will not likely kill you. Hobbies, shopping for the apocalypse, using vocabulary as a weapon, 
nominating cousins to council while they're out of town, chair yoga, looking up possible diseases or syndromes on the interwebs, perfecting gluten-free bannock, and plain mahjong. Be warned, she writes novels and tends to be cranky when interrupted. Um, So I love that, and I think it gives a really good overview of her personality. So she was born January 19th, 1968 in Kitimat, British Columbia. As you may recall, she shares a birthday with Dolly Parton and Edgar Allan Poe, which she does consider significant. She's a member of the Heisla and Heltzuk First Nations. As a child, she wanted to be an astronaut, but then realized there was a height requirement of five foot three. After one of her stories was read aloud in grade 11 and received praise, she decided she wanted to be a writer. She first thought she was going to write horror, and her early influences include Stephen King and David Cronenberg, which you can very much see in her work. She went to the University of Victoria and got a BA, followed by an MFA from UBC. Her first book, Traplines, was a collection of short stories and was a New York Times notable book. Her second book, Monkey Beach, was shortlisted for the Giller and Governor General's Literary Award. Her third book was Blood Sports uh, in 2006. Uh, Then she took eight years to write Son of a Trickster, which was published in 2017. This was shortlisted for the Giller and was a 2020 Canada Reads contender. The sequel, Trickster Drift, came out in 2018, and the trilogy was completed with Return of the Trickster in 2021. This was not intended to be a trilogy, but as she says, the story kept building and building like yeast. Um, Son of a Trickster was optioned for TV and premiered on CBC in 2020. Unfortunately, the second season was cancelled after the director's Indigenous identity was called into question. The first draft of Return of the Trickster was uncharacteristically happy, conflict-free, and she thought very boring. As she says, I had been with the characters for so long, I didn't want to hurt them in any way. Then the pandemic hit, and Robinson had to quarantine due to a possible exposure. She was alone on two acres of land, and it was spring, and she didn't know if she was having allergy symptoms or if she had COVID. She started rewriting the book as a distraction against what she thought was her imminent death, and it took the book in a very dark direction. Uh, She says, everyone died. It was a slaughter from beginning to end. Obviously, this was not the case for the final draft, which is a bit more of a happy medium. And of course, no bio of hers would be complete without mentioning her laugh, uh, which has been called the best laugh in the book business. I would highly recommend finding a clip of her talking. There's a short little video from CBC when Son of a Trickster was on Canada Reads, and um, Robinson's laugh is indeed just so wonderful and super infectious. And like Toby, she can also swear like a sailor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> not surprising. <laughs> So I thought with the uh, the summary, maybe I would do the, something like the story so far and then a little bit of the third book, just to refresh people's memories if they haven't read all three books. So let's see how this goes. Jared Martin just wants to be a regular teenager, but life has other plans. By the end of Son of a Trickster, Jared finds out he's the biological son of Weejit, a trickster spirit. His mom is an actual witch, and his girlfriend Sarah almost dies when she taps into her own magical potential. Jared's biological aunt, Georgina, also known as Dwasin's, Weejit's sister, sets him on the path to sobriety. In Trickster Drift, which takes place about a year after the events of Son of a Trickster, Jared moves to Vancouver to take college classes while connecting with unfamiliar branches of his family, his mom's sister, Aunt Maeve and crew, as well as Aunt Georgina's pack of coy wolves. When one of his mom's ex-boyfriends, David, stalks and ultimately attacks Jared, Jared's status as a trickster is confirmed when he transforms into a raven. 
The second novel ends on a cliffhanger where Jared tries to stop his aunt Georgina and her coy wolves from destroying innocent lives by trapping them all in an inhospitable caveman universe. Only Aunt Georgina survives, and she takes her revenge by killing Jared and eating his organs, and then doing it again and again in a Promethean time loop. Jared manages to escape his aunt and suddenly finds himself back in Kitimat in his mother's basement, naked, dehydrated, confused, and alone. The third and final book in the series, Return of the Trickster, picks up right where Trickster Drift left off. While most of Jared's non-magic relations believe his disappearance and reappearance was due to him falling off the wagon, Jared now knows some hard truths. He is, in fact, a trickster, like his biological father. Not only that, but of Weejit's 535 offspring, Jared is the only one who can claim the dubious honor of tricksterism. Another thing, his Aunt Georgina is furious that she is still trapped in the other universe and manipulates the coy wolves, the ones that are remaining, I guess, into going after Jared and everyone he loves. Jared can't fight Georgina and her wolves by himself, and it takes a number of unexpected allies to see things through. These include his father, Phil's mom, Nana Sophia, a Halite medicine woman, his mother's mom, Anita Moody, a residential school survivor who paradoxically has embraced the church and the power associated with Christianity, and a Sasquatch named Chuck. Robinson takes us on a dark and disturbing ride where horrible things happen alongside laugh-out-loud moments, sprinkled with generous portions of magic and deep-fried David fingers. As Jared's mum, Maggie, likes to remind us, the world is hard. You have to be harder. This final book in the Trickster Trilogy shows us exactly how hard the world can be. Well done. Yeah. Deep-fried David fingers. Wow. Oh, it was in yeah. a whole hand, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, pretty yeah. much. Um, so how did you guys find the book? I didn't like it. You didn't like it? Yeah, I'm, ugh, I really wanted to like it. I, I, I like Son of a Trickster. I really like Trickster Drift. This book, I, I had... I just, it didn't land for me. I just felt like all the the good stuff, the action was happening kind of like off screen while Jared was just like in the apartment fighting ghosts. Hmm. And there were just, there were so many characters. I got, I was constantly getting them confused. That whole climax scene, like I still don't really understand what happened with Sophia. Yeah, it just didn't land for me, unfortunately. <laughs> Oh, that does happen. Yeah. yeah. By far, I think this can be said is probably the bloodiest book we've read. Uh, the only other contender I would think would be Victor Lavalle's Changeling book we read a number of years ago that had extremely graphic scenes. So, I mean, the first two books had, had violence, but it feels like it is ramped up to an extreme level in uh, in this one. And maybe the story that you told Toby about her rewriting some of it has a lot to do with that, too, because I I, I kind of agree with her that I think if, if everything ended nicely or if everyone, it wouldn't have been that interesting. I went back and I read Son of a Trickster and Trickster Drift before reading this one just to refresh my memory. And I, I feel the three of them work really well together. And I was surprised that she didn't originally plan a trilogy because when you read them all together, it does feel like one story just split into, into three books. And I thought it was, a, for me, a satisfying conclusion to, to the series. How about you, Jordan? Um, I'm going to confess that, uh, one, I haven't finished a book yet. I'm well into it, but I've also read the first two. I can see the issues Toby has with it. There are times when I thought the uh, dialogue was a little too cute. Um, there are a lot of characters to keep track of. 
but I'm so far into it that my critical blinders are gone. I'm just in this world with these people who mm -hmm. I love, who I worry about. I'm finding Jared a little whiny, like Luke Skywalker in the first episode of Star Wars. Um, but, you know, he's in a rough place. I can commiserate with him on, on that level. Um, it's funny how uh, she portrays Sasquatch in Nishinaabe, one word for this territory is Sabe. How Eden portrayed that being, who indigenous people just accept as being with us. The difference, how she treated that being in Monkey Beach to Return of the Trickster. Suddenly he's like Mr. Brady, <laughs> as opposed to this, you know, dark character lurking in the forest. So, yeah, that was an interesting choice. And I did not know that Sasquatch ate humans, but luckily our Chuck is a Hugan. <laughs> vegan version yeah. of, of Sasquatch, uh, of the Sasquatch diet. So for me, when we had previously covered these books on the series, I had not read them because I wasn't on the panel at the time. So this past summer, I finally went and read the first two books in the series, and I was just in love with them immediately. So when I came to the third one, which I read about two weeks ago, it had been many months. And, you know, when, when there's time off in between books in a series, it's always like, oh, am I going to forget a lot of the details? And it's like, oh, I didn't have time to reread the first two. But as soon as I started reading, it felt familiar again. And Eden Robinson has a very good way of, you know, encapsulating the past couple of books, giving you the right amount of information, but keeping it in the flow of the story. And so I like right away, I was like, okay, I'm back with these people. I'm back in this place. I can understand, uh, Toby, you know, you weren't as fond of this one as the other ones, because uh, for, for me, I don't know how I feel about this book entirely. Like I've read it. I like so much of it, but there I have questions. Some of them were details, and I think maybe I skipped over some stuff. Like, I didn't, I don't understand how Bob the Octopus went from an antagonist to a friend. <laughs> I missed that part. Hmm. I'm not sure how, how that switch happened. I don't know how I feel about David having been a part of the magical world or having been able to connect to it. Cause in the first two books, like, he was just a human, you know, psycho stalker guy, as malignant and as awful as anything can be, but also very much rooted in the real world because we have people who do that stuff but now that he was also like just at the end oh no he was also connected to the magical worlds i don't know how i feel about that it kind of it kind of changes the way i interpret the first two books so i've got these things that in my mind have not settled yet and i feel like i have to reread the trilogy <laughs> at some point to kind of come to that point I did overall like it. Uh, and also I thought the last couple of chapters where all the action happened and everything kind of wrapped up, they hit me so fast. I didn't really want the book to end when it did because I still enjoyed being connected to all the characters, but it had to end. And so it did. And it was a big bang and uh, I wasn't ready for it. I had that reaction with any book I'm enjoying, dreading the end of it. Yeah. This series, I really like the way that Robinson writes dialogue and relationships. Like, these are not the types of relationships that I have in my life, but they feel very authentic to me as relationships of people that I know or have known at different points in my life. I like the way she writes in general. For this one, I, just, I felt like it wasn't as tightly focused as the first two books. I felt it was a little more scattered. Did anyone get the sense, and I think Jared mentions this a couple of times, but when he at the beginning of the third book, he questions whether he's actually come back to the same universe that he left because there's so many things. Cause really the third book takes place right after the second book. Like it's the same weekend and his dad has sort of become a, like a super evangelical Christian. 
which I mean, I suppose could happen because he hasn't seen his dad in a few months, right? Because he last mm -hmm. saw him when he came down to Vancouver to go to school. So it would have been like August, September, and this was supposed to be December, November, something like that, before Christmas anyway. And I, I was wondering, like, especially with the whole idea of the multiverse, could this be one possible ending and there could be it could be open to interpretation as to just like what you're saying, Toby, that she wrote one version of it when things were going well in her life. And then she wrote a extremely like the darkest timeline version when she was quarantined. And that, that to me is super interesting because uh, Jordan, like what you're saying is we've come to know and love these characters and we feel like they're living things. But the fact that Eden Robinson actually can decide their fates, like the third book is written. That's the story. But if she had written it a year or so ago, it may have been a totally different ending. And it just, it's, it's interesting. Like, do you find that like if something's going well or not well in your life, does that affect your creative process? How much of that do you let into your writing or, or do you try to just kind of like go into a vacuum or how does that work? For me, I think it affects more my ability to write than it does the content. I think, you know, once you have a story in your head, being in a bad mood, being in a good mood, being in a dark place in your life, being in a great place in your life, I think I can compartmentalize that. Maybe it's being, you know, half uh, Caucasian and being male. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't, th and I could be wrong. Mm. I'm not, you no, know, not as self-aware as some. Mm. Um, but it, it feels that... Uh, once you get the story and, you know, there's 15 different ways to write a story, right? You just have to figure out the best way to write this story. Took her only a few tries to get where she thought she needed to land with it. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. The fate of these characters that we all love are firmly in her hands, as was a TV series. It was her decision to um, put an end to that show, uh, which affected a lot of people, including the characters. One interesting thing with Trickster, or Return of the Trickster, that I didn't have in the first two is that when I was reading these characters and picturing these characters in my head, it was the actors from the show. Mm -hmm. I didn't have that in the first two books. They were my own creations, and I can't remember what they look like when I read in my head when, when I read the first two. I'm bad at visualizing characters. I, I just I have a lot of trouble with it. But sometimes, you know, you watch a, a movie or a TV version, and you're like, that's not that character. I didn't feel that way with Trickster. Like, watching it, as like, I, I thought Jared was maybe a little tall, rugged, and handsome for the character I would have pictured. TV is, you know, the boffability factor. He's got a... True. <laughs> I mean, I thought he was a good actor, and, and I liked what I saw. I've, I only saw the first episode. But the actors playing Maggie and Richie totally just became those characters for me. I thought they nailed it, and I loved Crash Pad. And, like, <laughs> um, they became the pictures in my head, too, because I thought they did a really good job casting them and, and their performances. Crystal Lightning, that's uh, Georgina Lightning's daughter. Georgina was in the show as well. But I thought she did a pretty bang-up job. It's uh, maybe a little over the top at times, but given the demands of the role and the content of the book, and I wasn't there to you know see how Mich Michelle Latimer directed her, but I thought she nailed it. And a little aside, her and her partner did that song a few years ago with a uh, local musician married to Tasha Spillett, Lorenzo, um, but he did the music but it's the meet me at the powwow song it's it's, it's quite popular in the indigenous world you know mm. i'll get my girls and i'll meet you at the powwow <laughs> i'll meet you at the powwow so very uh, talented talented family mm -hmm. do we want to talk about the tv show too yeah i think it's sort of almost like the elephant in the room that uh i know we're talking about the book but it, it definitely i think we there's a lot to talk about with the tv show uh, for me talking about the characters i don't know if, if this happened to you but reading the books I never pictured Richie as a, a white guy. In my head, he was uh, indigenous. 
And so I was kind of startled when he was a white guy. But I thought, oh, okay. And I went with it. I guess maybe because there was like all those references to him going back to Winnipeg and in the books and stuff. And not White, that- white people live in Winnipeg too. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of us here, Trevor. Come on. I don't know. I don't know. That was probably the biggest sort of casting change in my head from what, how I saw the characters in the book was Richie. But everyone else was sort of like... I. I could saw it, but it didn't take me long before I was like, it's like, yeah, no, this is Richie for sure. I mean, that first episode where he comes up to the drive through window and he pulls the gun on Jared. I actually like, uh, gasped out loud when I was watching it. I had my headphones on and my wife came in and said, what's wrong? I'm like, Oh, I just, you know, just watching this show. Like, I mean, it's, I thought it was very well done. And, uh, I don't, I don't fully understand exactly what happened with the show. The CBC canceled it. It involved the showrunner, Michelle Latimer, because she had also directed a, a documentary called An Inconvenient Indian. And for a press release for that movie, identified her with an indigenous group in Quebec who did not have the information or did not agree, did not sort of... Didn't recognize, didn't recognize her as being that. part of that community. And she stepped back from the trickster show. But then it was the, the CBC in consultation with... It sounds like a bunch of people, but I'm not sure exactly... Eden Robinson and everyone, and they decide not to go forward with season two. Do I have sort of like the the That's big, the, the, bare, the bones bare bones of it? of it? Yeah, you know, people questioned Joden Boyden's identity for years before it was revealed that he wasn't indigenous. And there's this sense, especially in the East, Quebec, Nova Scotia, that if you have a smidgen of indigenous blood, that you're Métis. But you can't tell that to the Métis of the Red River because their capital M Métis, they they do the Red River jig, they fiddle, they, you know, they, there's a specific culture, there's a specific language. And so that whole mixed blood versus Métis is all part of the murky identity politics behind it all. But uh, she assumed the family lore was true and just went with it without ever confirming it. And I w- I'm sure she had it in her head that she was Indigenous. I can't speak on her behalf, of course. And I'm sure it was a shock to her when she found out that maybe I'm not. But uh, she held on to it and, and fought fought for it. And uh, that's probably what cost the audience a season two or, and a season three and, and maybe more. I think the biggest victim, if that's the right word, I don't think it is the biggest casualty, metaphorically speaking, is is Eden herself, because there was an audience for it. You know, we're we're seeing how Reservation Dogs has um, become so popular and a similar style of show. I do remember watching it in the early going, and as soon as there was the big drinking in episode one, I think... uh, a lot of the indigenous audience over the age of 50 tuned out because, mm-hmm. you know, the stereotype. And the ones who stuck around, for me anyway, there are points where, because unlike Monkey Beach, which was directed by Loretta Todd and came out in and around the same time as all this, it was shot up in northern BC in Heisler Territory. Trickster series was shot in North Bay, Ontario. Mm-hmm. So they had to CGI in the mountains and all that. And there started to be some pan-Indigenous stuff. And Anishinaabe culture was leaking in into what is a Heisla story. So it kind of, things didn't sit well with me before I knew any of the goings-on. So, I mean, I enjoyed it. I kept watching, you know, I watched the whole series, as I have with Reservation Dogs. One of the beauties of both is... And this is what fighting with producers over the years with the various productions I worked on. When I started in television, I was the only Indian in the room on Indian shows. 
nowadays there might be one white person in the room. Reservation Dogs is all Indians in the room um, and other shows are like that. And I've recently had my first experience with an all indigenous writing room and you just save a shitload of time because you don't have to explain things to white people. <laughs> and what Trickster did and what Reservation Dogs does is it doesn't explain anything to the audience and that's super, super refreshing. Yeah, it treats the audience like they'll pick it up uh, and they're intelligent you know, enough to learn. you have the internet, you can pause it and hit cook them Google and find out what they're on about. Yeah, I will say too, like I have trouble picturing locations too. So when I was reading the book, Kitimat is kind of a mystery to me uh, in terms of what it would look like. And when I watched the show, I'm like, oh, that looks a lot like Ontario when I would go camping in the, with my family. And then I found out, oh, it is Ontario. Oh. Yeah. So I was disappointed at that too. <laughs> we had issues like that on Arctic Air because, you know, the north is a north and we were shooting. We'd, we'd go up north and shoot on location up there. We'd nail off scenes for three episodes at a time. But the, the bulk of it was being shot in southern, the greater Vancouver area. Our studio was in Aldergrove. Mm -hmm. But we'd have directors who would forget and the showrunner on set would forget and they'd have a scene with this giant cedar tree in the background. And it's like, that is not the north. That is the <laughs> west coast. <laughs> You get huge, you know, not huge, you get trees in the Northwest Territories that are 500 years old and they're four and a half feet tall. I went to visit a friend in Yellowknife one time and I just driving up and seeing the trees shrink is quite something. The landscape is, it's an impressiveness that is different from the impressiveness of other landscape that I've seen. It's just, it's its own thing. You drove from here to Yellowknife? Yes, uh, with a car that had no cruise control, uh, my <laughs> small pickup truck, um, which I, did I don't drive as well back in the day. My mom moved up to Yellowknife uh, Yellow in the mid '80s, and yeah. before they paved that road, so when the trucks would pass you, it was a dust storm <laughs> for a good ten seconds, and rocks were flying everywhere. I'd love to go over the Daycho Bridge; it's in place now at uh, Fort Smith. Oh, okay. Because back then it was a, a ferry. Yeah, I took a ferry. The mosquitoes were nuts. <laughs> It was warm, so you tried to open the window a bit and know the mosquitoes just pour in. If you do spend time in Yellowknife, um, go to the Outfitter's Place and get the hoodie with all netting. It will save your life. Yeah, I've been in Yellowknife on the longest day of the year and the shortest day of the year. Um, you. So, yeah, those were both impressive for different reasons. But I've golfed there twice. Ah, I have not done that. I went down the mine. Oh, the, the arsenic mines? <laughs> the no, <gold> mine. yeah. <laughs> hey, live the talent. Yeah, that kind of thing, like a lot of people watching it and, you know, you, you're not familiar with the place, so it doesn't necessarily throw you off. But if you are familiar with it, then it's, it, it changes your perception a bit of the show. Indigenous people, we read a lot of things into a lot of things and talk about doing things in a good way, which is why Loretta Todd fought to have her film that she directed based on Monkey Beach shot in the territory of the people whose lives are being portrayed in the story. This not having been done that way kind of has an effect on the show, on the audience. A good way is now small g. And yeah. as it turns out, uh, you get parenthetical bad way as well because the stuff that went down, it's too bad. It's a, it's a crying shame. Uh, and I hope one day that, you know, once all the options expire and all that kind of stuff that uh, they can revisit the notion. Yeah, it's definitely a series that I think can be adapted to multiple formats, just the way Eden Robinson is so good with mixing in little bits of pop culture throughout everything in the in the story. I don't know how to describe this feeling I have when I'm reading what she writes, but she's just very savvy about everything. Like <laughs> she seems to have a lot of the same pop cultural references that I have in my life. I guess we're similar in age, so that makes sense. 
but the way she integrates them in like you don't have to know all the stuff to enjoy the writing but it really adds layers to it just kind of build up the whole thing. She does not miss any opportunity for some punniness. Um, mm -hmm. Not that she uses puns. You know, you can see it as almost improvisational writing in some... I'm sure it's not. But when you're in the writing process, um, things jump up and you make connections. And she kind of just highlights them in a way that's really, really re rewarding if you're, you know, of a certain age, I guess. <laughs> well, I, I find one of her strengths, too, is her ability to write believable dialogue. Like I just find like the texts flying back and forth between Jared and his mom or or just the way the characters are talking. It felt like real people talking. And I think that's probably she makes it look easy. I suspect that probably isn't an easy thing to do to, to make it just seem so natural. And even though we're dealing with a lot of supernatural things, it felt very real and very believable. The whole story did. Although I will, I am going to call out something now after having praised her writing in her dialogue and stuff. I did not like Mallory at all. You like, weren't supposed to. Well, no, but like she was the most caricatured kind of character in the story. Like the whole, I'm little miss cutie, but I'm deadly. You know, it's like, it's a popular type of, of character in different things. Like there was that, uh, there was an animated thing on Netflix recently that had a character like that named Jinx. And so I get that, but also she seemed out of place in the story to me. Like that character did not land well for me. I did not like her. And so I was perfectly happy when Maggie choked her out. And <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> There's always spoilers, Carmen. There's always spoilers. Other than that, though, I, I did enjoy the other characters. Dialogue is, is tricky in, in television land. It's closer to poetry. You know, every single line has to mean something in layers and layers and layers. So it, it should have the rhythm of conversation, but it's art. Mm -hmm. It's taking conversation to an art form because if you've ever gone through the, um, and I guess you have because here we are in this podcast, but if you've ever had a discussion and everything is taped and typed out verbatim, it's horrifying how many <laughs> sentences aren't finished. And so it has, and you know, it has to sing, it has to feel real, but it's also developing an ear for it. Uh, some people have the knack, some people don't. I used to hear it said that um, what will make or break a TV series is makeup, hair and wardrobe and all that dialogue to that mix. A lot of the snappy dialogue we know, um, you know, from the West Wing and early sitcoms does come out of the Jewish culture and the Catskills and, you know, snappy, snappy, snappy. If you ever go to an indigenous community, it's pretty quiet. Sort of the beliefs are if you don't have anything to say, don't say anything. You know, we're not ones to fill up dead air. It silences. And radio knows this as well as podcasts. You know, t silence is a tool. It's not something to be feared. Mm -hmm. But I find, especially in contemporary times, people fear silence. They think they, they feel compelled to fill it with something that might not necessarily need to be there. So I think she has those sensibilities. She also portrays the mayhem of intergenerational trauma stemming from residential schools, all that rawness and mayhem. Um, you know, every indigenous person has experienced elements of that. So that rings true. One of the interesting narratives I found was her little asides to Weejit throughout, used judiciously, but uh, she jumps into the second person in writing about him, and you don't mm -hmm. see the second person used very often in literature or fiction. I think the only time I've seen uh, Tom Robbins, can't remember the name of the novel, but he wrote an entire novel in a second person. It was jarring for the first few pages, but then he just kind of went with it. Yeah, yeah, I like your, your comment about intergenerational trauma, because I think... 
if we put aside the whole trickster narrative, I really think these books are about Jared's sobriety and his path towards sobriety and and the various challenges he has in his life to stay sober. I really like that narrative and I like that story and I liked how in this book in particular, you see Anita, uh, Grandma Anita, she's a residential school survivor and sort of the trials she's gone through to talk about her past. And I think that was a really nice thing to, to see here. Yeah, it's pretty recent still. I mean, uh, the last residential school in southern Canada closed in 1996 and it was actually on my reserve, George Gordon's. Eden, I think, is a bit young. She may have gone to day school. I don't know. But her parents, all her relatives, would have had to have gone away to residential school. And it's it's fairly recent. Um, my own mother, I had an uncle named Bernard who was going to the school on the reserve. I think the next reserve over had the Roman Catholic school. And I think our reserve had the Protestant version of them. But he caught typhoid and they sent him home to die because he lived there. So they didn't bury him like the unmarked graves we're we're uncovering now. And on his deathbed, he'd made my grandparents promise that none of the younger siblings, among them my mom, would go to that school. Mm -hmm. Somehow my grandfather got my mom into a public school in Panachai, the small town, a few kilometers from my reserve, and had her billeted. But, you know, she was eight or nine years old and I guess she wasn't treated well. So she got in her head that she would walk home in January. Luckily, she walked down a road, so somebody drove by and found her, passed out in the ditch, and then my Musham had to come up with plan B, which was living off the land, going off grid, hunting, trapping, supporting the kids that way. But they, they got caught in Manitoba, so my aunts and my mother wound up going to residential schools in Manitoba, Bertle and Brandon. Just couldn't get away from it? No. It was a law. The only ones that didn't go were the ones who were hidden, not registered at birth, mm-hmm. typically to traditional families. Traditional families didn't want their kids going because uh, often the girls would get sterilized against their knowledge mm-hmm. um, to cut those lines. Um, so they would literally not register them at birth so there wouldn't be a paper trail, so they wouldn't come looking for them. And then when it time came to gather up the kids every, every September, They'd be off in the bush up somewhere in the dark recesses of the territory to protect them. Some of them had a hell of a time later in life trying to get a passport because they didn't exist on paper anywhere. I wonder if it's significant that Eden Robinson didn't bring Grandma Nita into the story till the third book. She's mentioned briefly at the very beginning of the first book is because she recognized she thought Jared was Weejit. And then there are a few letters that go back and forth. But as a character, we don't really get her story, her perspective till the third book. And I wonder if that's significant, that it took three books maybe to feel that this type of the story can be told. I don't know. Might have been luck of the draw. You never know. But yeah. uh, uh, serendipitous luck of the draw. It does feel like the progression, though. You know, now these characters, the audience, have earned the right to be invited into this mm-hmm. element of of the overall narrative. Mm-hmm. I think it's also a little bit of like building up a character. Like we knew of her existence. We had little bit, little touches of her throughout, and mentions that she's you know a powerful witch. And then when you finally meet her, and you know she's at first like that first meeting, she's like frail and quiet but then when she comes into like jared's apartment and she's like razor sharp she's making these biting comments you can feel her power on the page like how she just commands the room and it's like whoa now she's here you know 
and I kind of felt like that too with Sophia. There were these hints throughout the the books that she's a very dangerous, like very powerful figure, and uh, she seems so friendly and everything, you know. But you know, you don't want to get her mad, and even Maggie's like, you know, she doesn't really want to get her mad. And in this book, when it's like, oh, okay, now you've killed her son, you're going to war with the Halit. Both of those characters just kind of spring up as these really powerful figures that you really want on your side in the fight. Uh, <laughs> I love the badass women in in yes. these books. Like there's just they're chock full of just these powerful, strong, larger than life, supernatural often characters. Sophia, I'm very confused about her character. Is she good or bad? Well, that's the thing too. Like I missed the part where uh, when she showed up at the end there in the final battle and then she actually like attacks Jared at that point and I'm like, okay, this happened off screen, like, you know, on on screen, or like in front of us, we, I don't think we caught that point where she went into full war mode. Well, there was some moment where there was like that internal dialogue, the thing they can do between, I feel like it was Jared and Sophia, and Sophia had been like taken over by some sort of bad spirit, bad being. Angry. Angry, yes. I, angry. Out of balance. Yeah. And I, that was one of those things, like, I really feel like I need to reread at some point because I, I feel like there was maybe subtle mentions or things in there that were kind of directing this, but I kind of missed the point where she was like full on super scary to everyone near her. I assume that was out of grief because of her, her son's murder. Because in, in the first book, like she was, she was the fun grandma, right? She yes. was the one that would sneak, uh, sneak out with Jared and go to the movies, and they would ride around on her scooter, and she would uh, send him money. And then as soon as she found out that she was not actually Philip's biological son, that she totally cut herself out of his life, and it was devastating. So the fact that she comes back into his life despite the fact that she's not biologically related to him, but she comes back because she just genuinely loves and cares about Jared, I thought was really powerful too. That it went beyond sort of bloodlines that it was, uh, I thought it was a, a powerful statement. I think it's uh, also worth um, throwing out a little indigenous culture 101. Mm-hmm. Um, the worldviews are different, of course, but the, the root of them in some ways is, I'm going to lump in a a lot of people into a lump here, but Judeo-Christian, Western European, Islam culture is all predicated on this good versus evil paradigm. So where Christ and Satan, you know, Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader are modern incarnations of those beings. So it's very polarizing. In our cultures, you know, Anishinaabe, Nanabojo, Cree, um, Wasikijak, those are the tricksters. I can say the names out loud because we still have snow on the ground. Winter, <laughs> winter storytelling season. I want to tell you, we specifically made sure that there was snow on the ground when we invited you back. <laughs> good call. Good call. Um, they're one being. They're not split into two. So you got the yin and the yang is internal, much like humans. You know, the, our, the core of our being, the, the molecule, the, the DNA molecule is a double helix. So that duality is internal. And for us, it's not seeking out, you know, good, destroying evil. For us, it's living in balance. Balance mm-hmm. internally within the self balance in our relationships with the community and balance with the environment. So that value um, puts humans almost at an inverted pyramid of life. We're the worst at living in balance with the environment. Trees are much higher beings because they don't really, they have their politics and they talk and, you know, protect the young, but they don't really kill things to survive. So when you look at it in that way, you realize that placing values like good and evil 
are sort of foreign to these characters. It's about balance. So Jared's out of balance. The spirits are out of balance. And it's all about trying to find that balance. Hmm. But really, where's the good in the koi wolves? Well, we could have a whole other podcast. <laughs> they un- just seem pure that. evil to me. Well, yeah. in, 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 in a standard like there's darkness. There's yeah. um, predators as well. As yeah, like very, very true. Yeah, yeah. They're very base driven. And like many tricksters, uh, particularly Coyote uh, for the Okanagan, he's basically motivated by food and sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a lot of men. I think most men. I like that a lot because you can, you definitely see that those two sides in many of the characters, you know, Jared is a trickster, but he's kind of fighting the, the bad aspect of the trickster he wants. He doesn't want to be that. He doesn't want to be like his dad. And same with, you know, Sophia, we have these two sides of her. I'm thinking, who else do we have? Who has those two sides? I think pretty much most of them do yeah. to some degree or another. It's interesting that uh, Eden had Weejit, how many kids? 500? Over 500, yeah. yeah. I think that is a thinly veiled shot at indigenous men right across <laughs> the board. <laughs> I like how there was like a, a website you could go to and register yourself if you're one of his children. And, and, and it was in, it may not have been in Return of the Trickster. It might have been in Trickster Drift when Jared goes to the, the compound of the Koi Wolves and one of them is trying to figure out whether he can, he can use that to get benefits, like, the, mm. like from the government, whether he can use his, uh, his Weejit relations. It was kind of funny. I, I will say one of the things I really loved about the book is that because this one, Jared has accepted that he's a trickster. He does trickstery things, but not the same way Weejit might have done. Like when Bob the Octopus was harassing Eliza, he manages to burn a, a whistle, a safety whistle, so that the floating head can start <laughs> playing what's Baby Shark. What's his name again? The floating head? Huey. Huey, Huey that's Huey. it. And that was like, that's such a trickster type of, like, story like he does something and it's kind of funny and annoying but it solves a problem and it's like not it's out of the box right yeah. it's totally something that only he could have done or thought of at that moment and I, I he had other little things like that too where he was just being himself but he it, it was fitting more into this idea of the character that i imagined when i think of a trickster character i really enjoyed the type of thing One elephant in the room to a degree or an elephant in the book, which people talked about when the series came about, was choosing to use trickster characters takes some gumption. And so it's not something you would approach lightly. I don't know what Eden's process was. I'm sure she had one to protect herself because a lot of us fully believe when you mess with this stuff, you can open yourself up to some ramifications. And um, from stories based on people who worked on the TV series, those steps weren't taken to appease the gods. It would be a more, you know, European way of putting it. So, you know, bad shit happened as a result, you could argue. So it's, it, it's a brave trilogy. It's brave to take on these characters. It's brave to go to those places with these characters, the supernatural elements, because a lot of um, traditional people say, you don't, you don't mess with this stuff. You know, mm-hmm. the, the W character, the, the cannibal in the bush. I've, a couple of times I've had that character in a couple of things I've written and I was warned, you know, be careful. Um, I was on a Canada Council jury years ago. I can't say which one and I can't say what projects, of course, but there was some content with the W character and one of the more traditional people we had in the room just i'm out of here left the room would not comment on that project because he didn't want to open himself up or his family to any potential ramifications Hmm. and you know those are sounds superstitious sounds you know silly on some levels but uh 
most white people believe that absolutely, much like we believe Sabe and Sasquatch are real, and little people, and all of the above. And I noticed you're saying the W character, and I'm pretty sure I know who you're referring to, but you're purposefully not saying the name. Yes. Yeah, okay. I imagine that that is one of the complicating factors in the entertainment world dealing with so many Anglos and uh, like the cultural differences there that are hard to get across in a way that doesn't stop the story and get some indigenous culture 101 happening. Yeah, just because I, I know I'm often I'm a very skeptical, like straightforward, scientifically minded person. So I don't believe in the supernatural. And so for me, like, you know, um, having to working on a project and having to be respectful and considerate of other people's beliefs. I try to do that as much as I can because I recognize the importance of people's cultural beliefs to them and the significance that that can have that just kind of flies over my head, right? I know that that's something that I don't have a sense for. And I just imagine that there are other people like me that you have to work with when you're doing this stuff that maybe are less subtle about how they <laughs> respond to it. I'm trying to be polite as I yeah. say this. I've come across it numerous times. I mean, what I think uh, the writers like you in the rooms have to do is suspend their disbelief mm -hmm. and believe what the characters believe. I used to complain that North of 60, the characters talked and felt like they came from downtown Toronto because all the other writers lived in downtown <laughs> Toronto. Mm -hmm. It goes back to what you were saying before about the the difference about being in a writer's room made up of uh, indigenous writers. So you, you, you can cut out a lot of the shorthand or whatever or and or, the skepticism yeah that you can <laughs> yeah. yeah you know assuming you're on the same page i mean not everybody's it, it's interesting because uh off the top of my head i don't know who all were in those rooms but there were metis there was nishnabe so it was still mixing of mm. cultures mixing of nations and these days it's um you know i've written arctic air was dene characters but tlicho dene north of 60 were dene characters but slavey dene but uh, recently I was approached to uh, potentially adapt or rewrite a story about Blackfoot characters. And that one I was like, yeah, you want to find a Blackfoot writer for this one? Hmm. Because the Cree and the Blackfoot are traditional enemies. And A, you know, I don't want to write about Blackfoot characters, <laughs> although I love Nappy. They're a trickster. Nose Hill in Calgary is his nose, elbow rivers is elbow the belly buttes are his belly but if you know when time comes that the show is released and the blackfoot get word that a cree writer did the damn thing it would lose all credibility in in their eyes and i've heard of that happening too before there was a, a film project not related to uh cree and blackfoot but there was something that the rock was involved in Hmm. Um, and he is... Is South Pacific somewhere, is it? Yes. I but want to say the, Samoan, but I don't know if that's it. Yeah, actually, yeah, is that's it? you're correct. Um, he, he's from a Samoan uh, line and uh, family, and uh, he was being tapped to play a Hawaiian king. He was a Hawaiian god in Moana. Are you referring yeah, to that? No, there was a separate one. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think there was. Maybe I'm getting this mixed up. I'm terrible with details. <laughs> but what I do remember was that he was playing a Hawaiian character and that they were traditional enemies, their peoples. So that was, uh, some people were not happy about that for very obvious reasons. I'm going to be in Hawaii next week. I'll ask them. <laughs> yeah. Please let us know. 
So we are we have talked a little longer than we normally do about the book, so uh, maybe we should wrap up a bit. Does anyone have any final comments on the Trickster series or this particular book, Return of the Trickster, before we finish off? Just a sense of melancholy that when I finish the book, it's going to be over. Mm-hmm. I feel that too, and I feel, really do feel I'm going to have to reread this one, and I think I will enjoy it a lot. It was, uh, it was a good, good series. Yeah, I mean, I said I didn't like this book, and I mean, it's I didn't hate it. Like, I give it a three out of five. Oh. And, um, That's a passing grade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it, it is worth a read, especially on the tales of the, the first two. I think she's done a phenomenal job here with the series, and yeah, I am also sad it's over. One of the things that we were able to do when the first book came out was hang out with Eden when she came to town. And I think my wife Kim and I are partially responsible for her open account budget for food and drinks was suddenly uh, (laughs) looked upon by the publisher because we racked up a bit of a bill at the, the hotel over here. Because of COVID, we haven't seen her and she wasn't, you know, they're not able to. I mean, I can't remember the exact date this came out. Yeah, we, we didn't get to visit with her again and charge up a big liquor bill that comes from that intergenerational trauma. Celebrate our intergenerational trauma with her. Uh, my final thoughts is that each of the books are interesting on their own, but they are all better together. If I had to rate them, I think Trickster Drift was my favorite of the three. I found some of Trickster kind of a slow start. And this last one is just kind of bonkers. But uh, when you take them all together, I, I love the series. I just loved it. And rereading it, this is one of these books I'm going to, series I'm going to come back to, I think, uh, again. And uh, I'm going to find little things in it. Because I've already done that, reading it once. And these little, even though she wasn't planning on being a trilogy, I feel like she plants these little seeds that bear fruit if you're looking for them. With that, it's time to move to our cleverly worded segment, Can You Tell Me a Book I Would Also Like? If you like Indigenous fiction written by a Canadian author with uh, little bits of horror and um, Indigenous mythology, I think you might also like Moon of the Crested Snow by Wabgashig Rice. Have any of you read it? Not yet. Oh, okay. So it's very, very good. It's a post-apocalyptic book. It's set on a small reserve in northern Ontario. They lose their power. They lose their internet. They're very isolated. It sort of slowly comes to light that this is not just a regular power outage. There's something suspicious going on. Um, It's a really good kind of slow burn of a novel. Unlike the trickster books, the horror and the um, indigenous mythology is dialed way back. Speaking of the W word, we do get a Wendigo character here, which I, I really enjoyed. And it's, uh, it's a short book. There's also a sequel coming out next year. So I'm excited for that. So that's, I think, a really great one. And on kind of a related note, Wabgashig Rice has a podcast. It's called Story Keepers, and it's about Indigenous books. So he hosts it with someone named Jennifer David. And um, there's an episode on Return of the Trickster where they're joined by Sherry Dimmeline. So that is also well worth a, uh, a listen. Worth pointing out, uh, it wasn't his intent to write a sequel to Moon of the Crested Snow, as it wasn't Sherry Dimmeline's intent to write a sequel to The Bone Marrow. Um, I think Sherry was presenting to a school when the question came up and she went, well, no, no, there's no sequel. And the boo birds just descended (laughs) down on her. So that inspired her to do the sequel. And I think in Wob's case, and this might sound uh, me putting crass words in his uh, mouth, but 
it was such a success that I think people just want to see it continue. And uh, it, it makes sense when, you know, like Mr. Bean said, when you find that thing that the audience goes for, ride it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, aside, uh, Midnight Sweat Lodge was Wob's first book. I edited that book. Oh. I really like him. He's a great follow on Twitter, too. He tweets a lot about metal bands and yes. um, club sandwiches. He was just in Minneapolis, St. Paul, <laughs> yeah. one of his favorite bands. He, he worked here at CBC for a number of years, a number of years ago. Yeah. Well, I could go next. Uh, Jordan's given us some good uh, Indigenous 101 moments today. And in that sort of spirit, I'm recommending a book called Trickster, Native American Tales, a graphic collection. Now, this we have this in our library collection in the young adult section and in the graphic novel section, both of which I just remind everybody is they're not genres, they're formats. What this is, is it's a collection of 21 folk tales written by different indigenous storytellers who selected which artists they wanted to illustrate the stories. And so many of the storytellers had never worked in comics before, and many of the artists do not have indigenous backgrounds. But so it's a very interesting pairing of different trickster stories from a variety of different traditions in North America. So uh, the trickster appears as the as a rabbit, a raccoon, coyote, and of course the raven in different stories. And the uh, style of uh, illustration goes from very cartoony to very sort of static. So each story really stands on its own, and it's I found a very interesting, uh, provided me a lot of interesting background information or expanded the trickster uh, idea for me who has not grown up with these stories. So I would uh, recommend that for anyone that wants to learn more about the trickster. One little comment. Um, The indigenous members of your audience will raise a brow and possibly their back at the use of the word folk stories. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. They're very real. Oh, my turn. <laughs> yes. Uh, keeping in the indigenous milieu, um, and I'm glad nobody else recommended this book because I don't have a plan B. <laughs> um, <laughs> Five Little Indians by Michelle Good, which I recently read and is being developed into a TV series as well that uh, I'm on as an editor. So segue into promoting some stuff. <laughs> it's not out yet, but uh, it's, it's in the process. Um, it deals with residential school survivors and I think that's the key we don't spend a lot of time in the residential school with the kids when they're kids but we spend time in the aftermath and the lives that they've lived after and how students from the specific residential school their lives keep crisscrossing and bouncing into each other later later in life and just uh, it's a journey of healing but it's also um, a really good look at getting out of the institution and seeing the legacy, how it affects people on a real level and what they deal with in their lives to try and hope that, you know, it's going to, it's still going to be a few generations before we're out from under the stuff we've, we're coming out from under. But this book uh, sort of reveals a process that can be an impetus on that journey. I'm like number 200 on the hold list for that book. <laughs> There's a lot of holds. The Trickster Trilogy is an amazing contemporary urban fantasy, so I'm going to switch to a space opera set thousands of years in the future as my recommendation, for whatever reason. Um, Specifically, I'm going to recommend the Imperial Ratch Trilogy by Anne Leckie, uh, which starts with Ancillary Justice. I've only read the first book in the series, but the others are on my to-read list. The Ratch Empire uses ships controlled by artificial intelligences, which also control thousands of human bodies called ancillaries to use as soldiers. 
The protagonist, Breck, was an ancillary aboard the ship Justice of Torin when it disappeared due to an act of betrayal, leaving Breck as the sole survivor and the carrier of the last fragment of Justice of Torin's consciousness. The story consists of multiple narratives split across time, describing what happened to Justice of Torin and following Breck as she seeks justice against the ruler of the Empire. Breck and Jared are both complicated and likable characters, their stories are big, and the writing in both series is excellent. Both series have rich and vibrant universes that you can really dive into, and what really captured my attention in Ancillary Justice were the scenes involving the distributed AI consciousness, a great concept that was handled well. The Imperial Ratch Trilogy, starting with Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie. Uh, we have the whole series in print, ebook, and e-audiobook formats. And I just think if you like the kind of the scope and scale of Trickster, you may also enjoy the scope and scale of uh, the Ratch Trilogy. Hmm, I always thought it was Ancillary. How did you pronounce it? Ancillary? I did. You know, it's one I of those wonder, words I, I think you can do multiple right ways. <laughs> I don't know. I could be wrong. I'm like wrong a lot. Kilometer and kilometer. Yeah. Schedule. Schedule. Where'd you learn how to say, what is it? Where'd you learn how to say schedule? In shul. <laughs> uh, since we're on the words and the pronunciation, it's time for our favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, wherein we try to bring out the magic of words by discussing a particular word or phrase that's been on our minds. So, have you got a good word? I'm going to go with my original word, not the word that uh, came up in an earlier discussion, which was off mic. So I'm going to go with overmoral because it's one of those words we don't really use anymore, but it's a cleaner, more efficient way of saying the day after tomorrow. I like, I like that. It. it sounds like it would be in a Shakespeare play. We shall do so overmoral. <laughs> you got to kind of British up your accent a bit if you're doing <laughs> that, though. That's great. Well, uh, this episode will be first available on April 1st which is kind of appropriate for talking about the trickster. So my word is humorina. Hmm. Now, humorina is tied into the idea of April Fool's Day. Some historians speculate that April Fool's Day dates back to 1582 when France switched from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar. And so the old New Year's Day used to be April 1st, but then, of course, it changed to January 1st. So anyone still celebrating New Year's Day on April 1st was a fool. So whether it started from that or not, in France, they would stick uh, paper fish on their back and they'd call them poisson d'avril, April fish, because they were young, easily caught fish and they were gullible. Now, of course, we all have our own little traditions on April Fool's Day, but there's only one place in the world where it is an official holiday, and that is in the city of Odessa in Ukraine. Hmm. Uh, and they have a the, festival. One of the few cities not under attack in that country right now. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah, uh, Humorina, it was actually born out of an act of censorship in 1972. The Soviet authorities decided to take a televised improv comedy competition off the air because a local comedy troupe from Odessa was winning. And to sort of combat that, the local comedy troupe started a festival that was all about laughter and telling jokes and uh, pulling pranks and things. And the local authorities, who even though they were Soviet, were also local people, they supported the proposal to hold a festival. One of the sayings that they say on April Fool's Day there is, April the 1st, I trust nobody, which I think is probably a good motto for all the other days of uh, the year, too. But an interesting thing is that sometimes on April Fool's Day, actual things happen, but people think it's a prank. So, for example, in 1946, 
there were uh, tsunami warnings that went out, but people thought it was a hoax. And so 165 people died in Hawaii and Alaska. So, Jordan, next week, if there's a tsunami warning, <laughs> please uh, pay attention to it. We, we, you're a civic treasure, and we, we want you to come back to one piece. Well, there's going to be some tobacco put down at Waikiki Beach pretty quick <laughs> upon our arrival. And I'll just finish by saying there's one other thing that actually happened on April 1st, which people thought were the prank. April 1st, 2004, Google announced they were going to have a new service, Gmail. And people thought it was ridiculous because the amount of storage capacity they were offering was 10 times that which uh, email services were offering then. But it wasn't a joke. It just was a bad timing. Humoria. It's quite amazing. Hmm. Yeah, you'd think they would know better than to make a big announcement like that on April 1st. I I think they did that on purpose. (laughs) I think they expected people to think it was a joke and then be kind of odd when they realize it wasn't because a gigabyte was a big deal back then. (laughs) All right. My word comes directly from the book, and it is ensorcelled. Um, I don't know if anyone noticed that word, but it really jumped out at me. It was She snuck it in in one of the last chapters, and it is a word that means um, bewitch or enchant. And I like it because it kind of sounds like it means, you know, the source sounds like sorcerer, and it comes from that etymology. So it's like you are, you've been sorcered. Um, in Sorcelled. And it has this kind of fun, magical quality to it. Looking up the meaning, it is often associated with evil spells or curses. So when you are in Sorcelled, it's kind of that like um, cartoon character swirly eye thing when you're doing something against your will. But yeah, just a word that jumped out for me that I like. It's interesting. Sorry, I keep jumping in. Um, Please do. But it's often, I think, useful to just step back and realize that this book was written in a foreign language to the Heisla. English is not our language. Mm-hmm. It's been imposed upon us. So it's, you know, the choice of words, the choice of how, how to use this foreign language. You know, a lot of us grew up with it. We've learned it, but it still has sensibilities in it that you won't find in the indigenous language. I'm sure if this book was written in the indigenous language, the vibe would be in the same ballpark, but the nuances would be a lot crisper, I think. And that might be because our thought structure is still rooted in our indigenous language. And that might be something that because Eden's working with English, her thought process may not be entirely properly reflected by the use of the English language. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's one of the tricks of communication in general those people are always coming from different backgrounds and different histories and our languages and expectations go along with that so every book every story is this attempt to get across these ideas and it's always imperfect mm-hmm. uh, just by two people even with the same background and uh, similar experiences are going to have that problem and going across culture like you say you've given us a lot of uh, indigenous 101 here <laughs> which which is one of the reasons we really wanted you back and are glad you came because there's all these elements to the story I know I'm missing when I read it. And that's just, that's also like the constant human struggle to communicate. Well, the storytelling, what's the word? Uh, tradition isn't quite it. The storytelling, I think Bob McKee refers to it as uh, not quite ceremony, but the ritual is ancient, is, you know, sense communication. And it all started around the fire one-on-one or a few people around the fire. If you ever hang out with indigenous people at a powwow or a Sundance or out in the land at any point in time, the fire will be there and people will gather around and gradually the stories just organically go around in the circle, which is the structure of our storytelling. It's a circular. So um, I think there's a circular structure to to the Trickster series as well. The word that I uh, came up with out of this book was cryptid. 
So one of the characters introduced in this book was Chuck, the wild man of the woods, or what we often refer to as a Sasquatch or Bigfoot, but uh, he wasn't comfortable with that term. Sabe. When I was young, I was really big into the idea of Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and uh, things like that. And uh, I discovered at some point that a common term for them is cryptids. Merriam-Webster defines cryptid as an animal that has been claimed to exist but never proven to exist. So the first part of that word, crypt, means hidden or covered and comes from the ancient Greek where it referred to an underground room. And the suffix id refers to one belonging to a specific line and also comes from the Greek. People who studied cryptids are often referred to themselves as cryptozoologists, a field that began in the late 50s based on the work of uh, Bernard Hovelmans, a Belgian zoologist, and Ivan Sanderson, a Scottish zoologist. And the word cryptid was coined in 1983 by cryptozoologist J.E. Wall, who wanted a less pejorative term than monster to describe what they were studying. There are quite a few cryptids claimed to exist in various parts of the world. Some of the more famous are Bigfoot and Nessie, uh, but also El Chupacabra, the Yeti, uh, Ogopogo here in Canada. Manipogo. Manipogo. And a quick browse through Wikipedia's list of cryptids provides some delightfully named entries, including the Honey Island Swamp Monster and the Lizard Man of Scape or Swamp. I probably shouldn't have to say it explicitly, but I'll note that cryptozoology is not a recognized scientific discipline. <laughs> Unlike zoology, folklore studies, um, and while cryptid is a common term in the cryptozoological subculture, it's not a term used by zoologists. Uh, cryptozoologists generally eschew the scientific method, probably because they can't provide the type of evidence that fits into the scientific method. Cryptid, it's... Oh, I'll also note that we do sometimes confirm the existence of creatures that were thought to be legendary, the most famous being the giant squid, an animal which was described by Aristotle and Pliny the Elder and has long been part of seagoing culture and folklore and stories. The first images of a live giant squid weren't taken until the early 2000s, and the first live specimen was captured in 2006. So just because we don't think something exists doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I still think a lot of the things that are cryptids don't exist. The monkey dog from Six Nations would, would fit in that list. A hmm. couple of things to um, think about in terms of the Sabe, Sasquatch, Bigfoot. Um, there's two strains. There's a, ones with shorter, darker hair, and they're pretty benign. There's another strain that has longer, reddish-brown hair, and they're, they're a little more dangerous. They'll rape human women. Hmm. Um, if you're ever out in nature and fairly large rocks start landing in your general direction go back in the direction you came. I like that advice. So unfortunately, that's all the time we have this month. Thank you for joining us, dear readers. For next month, we're going to read and discuss Unless by Carol Shields. Rita Winters, 44-year-old successful author of light summertime fiction, has always considered herself happy, even blessed. That is, until her oldest daughter, Nora, mysteriously drops out of college to become a panhandler on a Toronto street corner, silent with a sign around her neck bearing the word, Goodness. Sound interesting? Have comments or opinions? Whether it's a few words or a five-page double-space book report, we'd love to hear about it. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes and discussion questions there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find... Time, time to, to Read! read.
us. Yeah. Yes, thank you. And for rearranging it. I mean, when you said you were away next week, I was like, oh no, we, we it would be much a lesser discussion if we didn't uh, have you included. So we're really glad that you could make. And that. had we waited till after Hawaii, all the snow may have been gone. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and I was actually very concerned about that because I I was listening back to the old so podcast yeah, too. Seeing and how I'm, much snow was coming down in the last month, going yes, I had also had a plan that if the snow was going to melt, I was going to put some in a cooler and I was going to bring it here. <laughs> I feel like that's cheating. Yeah. 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 Some people will say, ah, oh, there's snow in Antarctica. We can talk about this. It's not the same thing. No.